Welcome to Homestead Gardening in the Texas Gulf Coast with Kristen Howard. Have you ever tried to cook a traditional Thanksgiving meal with your homegrown produce? If you live in the Midwest or northern states with a cooler climate than the Texas Gulf Coast, you probably have been successful at creating gorgeous homegrown meals that match the traditional holiday expectations. But how do we as Southern gardeners create a Thanksgiving meal if our crops don't grow at this time of year, or perhaps they just don't store long enough, like potatoes, which can't be stored for six months in a root cellar from our spring harvest because we don't have root cellars and we're quite humid in Houston. Maybe your pumpkins were started at the last minute at the end of summer and haven't even finished growing yet, or maybe they have, but they're not completely cured and ready to cook for Thanksgiving. The truth is, the Thanksgiving meal was concocted using the common foods found in the region at the time of the first Pilgrim Thanksgiving, and the South's gardening region doesn't exactly resemble that region at all at the same time of year. In this episode, I'll share with you a few tricks I use to manipulate my garden for holiday meal planning and the substitutions I use to get a 90% from the homestead holiday meal so you have the opportunity to incorporate your garden into the holidays. By the way, that extra 10% I left off assumes you may be purchasing your dairy like cream, butter, and cheeses, but I very much expect you're planning to process your own home-raised turkey. Okay, if you aren't, that's all right, but I will be treating you to a turkey processing video on my YouTube channel from one of the many Thanksgiving holiday meals from way back when in 2015, where we did raise, process, and then cook our turkeys. It was in fact the very first time I've ever done this in my life, so the video is a little bit rough, but you'll get the idea. I highly recommend trying to raise your own meat birds at least once in your lifetime, even if it's just with a smaller bird like quail, chickens, or ducks. You may not be equipped at this point in time to prepare a from the homestead meal, but if that's something that's important to you, take the time to plan out your garden for this goal next year. Listen to this episode to learn how I've navigated this challenge myself. Each year I perfect my goals or change them to make them more realistic. Don't be afraid to find an easier path to achieve your goals or make adjustments to those goals to fit your current lifestyle. A Thanksgiving meal traditionally includes turkey, stuffing, mashed potatoes and gravy, cranberry sauce, at the minimum, with an above and beyond meal adding in green beans, other potato dishes, pumpkin pie, apple pie, pecan pie, rolls, and possibly some other hot greens scattered about the serving table. In my family's tradition, greens are scarce, but breads and potatoes are abundant. We are, in fact, from the Midwest. I'll definitely be offering you more than just one idea for green dishes, though, that you can add to your Thanksgiving meal, because this is more my style to prevent the after-Thanksgiving food coma or sugar crash that I've encountered most years, probably due to us not eating until we arrived, and then stuffing our faces with all the foods we usually don't eat the rest of the year, mainly pies. Let's start with turkey. I have a few fun stories for you in this podcast episode that you're not going to find on the YouTube channel. Of course, you'll see a bit of our processing this week in the YouTube episode, but if you raise your own turkeys, you want to make sure you're preparing your birds in advance so the meat isn't tough on the day of cooking. One mistake we've made a few times is processing our birds the same day we eat. We had a policy on the homestead way back when, when we were trying out different birds and processing them, 
The people who joined the meal with us had to participate in the processing. And that proved to be a little bit difficult because you cannot process the bird, wait three days, and invite people back over, especially if they're traveling. So we did seem to make the same mistake over and over where we were processing our birds and eating them the same day. It also made for a long, long day between processing and cooking. I recommend processing the birds at your convenience earlier in the season when they are weighing five pounds heavier than you'd like them to be for the cooking process you would prefer. So for example, if you like a small bird for frying, you want to make sure the bird doesn't get too large before you process. Once you remove the feet and a few other parts from the bird's innards during processing, you should easily discard about five pounds of weight. It wasn't until the day of the processing, that morning of, that we realized we'd let our birds grow way too big. They were really difficult to process because they were difficult to lift and they didn't really want to be in an oven. We had to remove several racks to make it all work. And originally we were planning to fry the turkey. So we were not even prepared to bake a turkey that day. A turkey raising tip is to purchase heritage turkeys instead of broadbreast turkeys. Broadbreast turkeys are bred to get really fat, really fast. And a lot of fat will just be found on the breast of the bird, which does keep the meat from getting dry during cooking, but it's super gross. Broadbreast is the preferred commercial turkey because they can't fly or exercise much due to their excessive weight, which also results in more tender meat, but raising them isn't very enjoyable. They sort of just sit around and wait all day for food or eat constantly if you let them. I've owned both male and female broadbreast turkeys and male and female heritage turkeys. The difference between the females is flying versus not being able to fly for heritage and broadbreast. Males, which get very large anyways, typically don't fly at all, whether it's a broadbreast or a heritage, but the difference is that full-size heritage males are fast runners, so they're super quick on their feet. Male turkeys are scaredy cats, and they will tuck tail and run the moment they realize their puff-up display isn't scaring you. Broadbreast males are slow and lumbering. They require two human males in good shape to pick them up if the turkey doesn't struggle or kick out of the hold to begin with. I know this because I had to help move my male turkey to a permanent home once he became too large to process and we decided not to keep him. He refused to be picked up and refused to walk up a ramp onto a truck. He had to be walked about 250 yards to his new home. Halfway through the trek, we regretted our decision because the bird was breathing so hard and was so exhausted, but we had to push through. Imagine walking the length of one football field from goalpost to goalpost and then not being able to turn around and walk it one more time because you're not physically fit enough. That's the difference between broad breast and heritage birds. Obesity or Usain Bolt. A couple more side notes. Duck is actually the most difficult bird to process because of the downy feathers, but pretty easy to raise and super tasty. Other heritage bird breeds or laying chicken breeds do have tastier meat than the fast-growing commercial birds, but this meat is tougher, which I sort of already alluded to since the birds exercise and the bird is smaller in size. If you want to raise meat birds instead of heritage birds, just keep in mind that these breeds are usually too fat to procreate on their own and they die very young at half the normal captive lifespan or less for reasons that I explained earlier. The truth is, because they can't procreate, the only purpose for these birds is for food. I have to mention this, or at least I feel like I have to mention this, because I have several in-laws that are vegetarian for emotional reasons, and the idea that we raised our own meat birds was very disturbing to them. I made the argument that our broad-breast turkeys were artificially inseminated, which is true, 
and wouldn't have existed otherwise, but that didn't really make them feel better. If and when you watch the turkey processing video on YouTube, just try to keep this in mind. These birds were made for eating, and that's just what we did. So enough about meat, let's move on to the garden produced options. For each vegetable or dish mentioned, I will do my best to share with you how to grow it fresh for your holiday table or substitutions and creative solutions that may work better for you. Corn is possible to grow in time for Thanksgiving, but it is very tricky to get the timing right. If you do grow corn, you can always take the kernels out of the corn and immediately freeze it to cook later. Instead of corn on the table or traditional rolls, try a grain corn in spring that you can store, grind, and use for a less traditional but still very tasty cornbread. If that isn't the dish you fancy, you can instead start a late crop of corn in June in a row crop along with drip tape or some sort of irrigation to make sure you get good-sized heads and kernels and plan to fertilize heavily at the right time as well and invest in BT to treat for worms. Those letters are BT, B as in beta and T as in tango. This is the acronym for a naturally occurring bacteria that I cannot pronounce that attacks worm pests on your corn and can be used on other crops that get worms easily. Without using this at the end of the season, it's likely your crop will be infested with worms. I rarely grow corn, but when I do, I do not use BT. Instead, I start earlier in the season and I cross my fingers hoping for the best. Each year is a little bit different. Some years yield a great crop of corn this way. Others are a complete disaster. This past year was one of those years. Flour is a major component to a lot of holiday dishes like pie crust and is a thickening agent for gravy. There isn't an easy way to get around this unless you grow another grain substitute. You can grow sorghum in the South instead of wheat for a direct replacement for your flour. Sorghum is so much easier to grow than corn, and it is now added to my yearly list of must-haves for the garden. Amaranth is also sometimes used as a flour substitute, but for this purpose, it's only a direct replacement for 25% of your wheat flour. Both of these grains are a great alternative in the South to grind and use for your Thanksgiving meal, though. Chia seed can also be grown here, but I haven't personally devoted time to growing this crop yet. I will next year. Sorghum kernels are very easy to grow, as mentioned. They are larger than chia or amaranth seeds, which does make them easier to handle if you want to make your own flour. Because sorghum is gluten-free, you cannot use it as a flour substitute to make rising bread like rolls, which needs to have all of that gluten. Instead, consider falling back on a cornbread alternative for the meal if you need a bread item on your table that is grown from your homestead. Of course, gravy is super easy to make using your drippings, fresh herbs from the garden like sage and savory, and a little thickening agent like sorghum instead of wheat flour. Stuffing is tricky. My recommendation is to make your own stock or broth using bones or drippings in advance and can or freeze this. I'm sure you can turn this stock into bouillon cubes for easier storage, but I haven't taken the time to dry liquids into powders with my dehydrator at my homestead. So I'm not really sure how well that would work or what that would entail. If you don't have space to store things, that may be an idea that you could look up. Stocker broth made at home can use the trimmings from any of your vegetables like celery, carrot, herbs, greens, onion, garlic. Pretty much you can name it, you can use it. After you make your stock, you can skim out the vegetables, squeeze out all the juices, and compost them in your bokashi 
compost system. The reason why I mentioned the Bokashi composting system instead of the normal compost bin is because a lot of the stock is going to contain oils and possibly salt at this time. Your Bokashi system can handle that. The rest of the stuffing is usually made of bread, butter, onions, celery, and maybe some spices or a binder like an egg. If you have home-raised chickens, you can check the egg box, but the rest may have to be grown earlier in the season and stored in the pantry either dehydrated or fresh in the freezer. I don't think there are many other hard and fast rules about stuffing, so feel free to get a little creative with this or just take a shortcut. I personally would cut this all together for my dinner table. <laughs> it's just not a food I get excited about. Now pie filling isn't too tricky. For traditional pumpkin, apple, or pecan pies, you can mostly make these from the homestead. Apples are difficult to grow in Houston. There are only a couple varieties that sometimes work, but a kefir pear is pretty easy. These ripen in late August or early September and can be peeled and stored in the freezer until you're ready to use them. I chose to turn my pears into a rosemary chutney that goes extremely well with turkey, chicken, and other poultry. And after making this chutney, I froze it in small batches, which defrost perfectly in about a day. But you can absolutely use pear to make a cobbler or a mixed fruit pie. If I know my fruit will become a future pie, I actually prep the crust and filling in a pie tin and freeze the entire thing. Pecans will sometimes grow in Houston. Our healthy crops are kind of rare. For a healthy crop of pecans, trees should be grown in a high spot so the soil can drain in our heavy rains. Then you need to have an aggressive spray program to prevent pests like pecan webworms or piercing and sucking insects, which will damage your pecans without you even knowing it until you start shelling them. Then if you're successful, you have to battle the squirrels for your nuts. That's actually the easiest part to this whole thing. But once you nap those tasty pecans off the tree, a pie is in your future. Now, pumpkin pie is incredibly easy. You must, must, must start your pumpkin vines as early as possible in the season and harvest around June or July. Pumpkins require a few weeks to cure before using, and you cannot cure pumpkins outside if you're harvesting in June or July. It's too warm. You want to make sure you're curing approximately a room temperature, but once they're finished curing, you can either cook and turn the innards into your pie filling in advance or leave the cured pumpkin on your pantry shelf until you're ready to use it. These pumpkins should last about six months, but in a humid house in Houston like mine, I don't like to store my pumpkins or other squashes more than four months. Sorghum can do more than just produce grains, and you can actually produce sorghum syrup. Now, I mentioned this, and I'm sure you're really excited, but this is incredibly difficult to do without machinery, and it's more difficult when you have a small homegrown batch. But for educational purposes, I do want to mention this as an alternative to cane sugar when you're cooking if you're extremely dedicated to your homegrown or homesteading craft. If you are able to get your hands on some machinery, or if a large group of other homesteaders want to invest in more tools for the homestead, you can grow a lot of sorghum easily and process this easily in a larger batch. Now I'll talk about all those taters on the table. Houston doesn't produce potatoes at the right time of year. We harvest potato around mid-June at the latest, and sometimes you can get another crop growing for a super late early winter harvest. The spring potato harvest will actually start sprouting eyes by about September when they aren't stored in a root cellar, which Houston doesn't have. And that's not a long enough shelf life. So here's what I do with potato for Thanksgiving. 
I cook all my potato in advance as a twice-baked potato that stays in the shell. But instead of baking it the second time, I freeze these prepped, partially cooked potato dishes. Then I put them on a cookie sheet frozen before it's mealtime and finish the twice-baked process before the meal. This is a great way to keep from having leftovers because you can get a head count of who wants the potatoes before you pop them in the oven and leave the rest in the freezer for another meal. If you're cooking a different potato dish, you can cut and store these taters uncooked, just like the frozen meal section does in slices or cubes, and use them as you normally would in your dish. I don't like to can my potatoes. It just seems like a waste to can a starch, but this is an option, of course, as well. Now, if you want to get creative and you grow wax melon like I do, I have actually created a cheesy wax melon au gratin dish that people are more than happy to gobble up when they don't look at it too closely. But in all seriousness, it's actually very good. Honestly, cheese covers up a lot of other flavors. And wax melon is super versatile because it's not a competitive flavor, just like potato isn't. I like substituting with wax melon because it's low carb and I like the taste. A lot of other gourds offer this same versatility as well. And fewer carbs and starches on your table might help you manage that sugar crash or carb crash after the meal. Sweet potato is really difficult to grow for most people. You have to have the right soil, space, fertilizing program, and harvest at the right time. I've seen lots of gardeners in Houston do this well, and lots of gardeners not do this well. By the way, I heard the key to growing sweet potatoes is to fertilize with rabbit poop or humate-rich fertilizer. Truthfully, humates are the trick to any super successful garden, so make a note of that. If you're looking at two different fertilizer brands that seem to be identical, but one is more expensive, read the back label. If it includes humates, it's probably the more expensive one. If you can't grow sweet potato, try growing butternut squash instead. There is a baby variety of butternut squash, which I have seeds for if you're interested. And it's a great single serving option that can be cooked easily the day of on a cookie sheet, along with those twice baked potatoes. Now onto some creative thinking in order to add a cranberry sauce to your table. Have you heard of Roselle hibiscus? I've probably only mentioned it a thousand times on my social media, but I have not mentioned it here. Well, probably not. I don't think it's been given a dedicated episode. Roselle hibiscus blooms only in fall when the weather starts to get cooler. After the blooms drop, the seed pods are each covered by something called a calyx. These calluses are edible and can be separated from the seed pod and either eaten raw or cooked into a jelly or sauce. The tartness of this part of the plant reminds me of a tart cranberry, but I also think it has like a lemony flavor that's really interesting in addition to the cranberry flavor when it's eaten raw. This is the perfect homegrown substitute to make your cranberry sauce, and it's even a maroon pink color, so your guests probably will never know it's not the real thing. As a bonus, it's really healthy for you, unless of course you add a bunch of sugar to the dish. This part of the plant will develop in November in Houston. You may not be able to harvest this completely fresh if you have an early cold snap, which might require you to harvest a week or two early. So just try to harvest these as they get large or as it gets too cold outside. I like to pull the flower out of the center of each of these calluses about 12 to 24 hours after the flower closes. Then I let the seed pod grow, which also grows the calyx protecting the pod. There is a distinct point in the growing process where the calyx grows quite large, then becomes less fleshy and dry as the seed pod's protective coating becomes hard enough to protect the seeds on its own. 
This is the obvious sign that it's time to harvest those calyces, but you can also harvest before this time when the calyx is more fleshy. I peel the calyx from the seed pod and leave the pod behind to finish protecting the seeds as they mature because I love to harvest as many seeds from the garden as possible. My favorite part of the Thanksgiving meal are the greens, which are few and far between at my traditional table for my Midwest family. But let me give you some excellent garden options that you can use. This time of year, you may already have some early cool season crops growing. All of your brassica plants like cabbage, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, and kale have edible leaves that you can saute, stir fry, or turn into a kale style chip in the oven, which may be a fun and easy appetizer for you and your kitchen recruits as you cook this meal. Basil may have already slid into home plate at this point in the season, but it may still be rounding the bases. Pesto is a great addition to turkey and can be made with drippings, walnuts, and parmesan for a heartier pesto sauce. Pesto is a great addition to turkey and it can be made with basil, drippings, walnuts, and parmesan for a heartier sauce. You can also just make traditional pesto in advance and freeze it, then thaw when you're ready to use it. Don't be afraid to make a pesto alternative using dehydrated greens powders or fresh kale or spinach. You may have garden fresh spinach or lettuce ready to make a salad, but your salad extras like carrots, radish, and celery may not be ready. Consider getting creative with edible flowers or nasturtium leaves for the salad. Look for young bright green roselle hibiscus leaves if you have not had a first frost, or use those roselle calices for your salad to brighten up the flavor. Snap peas should be thriving in the cool late November weather in Houston, and they can offer your salad a nice crunch. You may even have some last minute ripe tomato or peppers you can pull off your plants before first frost. Fresh herbs are a must for your salad. Your cilantro and dill should be in season around this time of year. And you may even have onion and garlic leaves you can use. I like to grow walking onions year round and this gives me continual access to chives. If you don't have cool season plants growing at this time, you can try using Malabar spinach instead. The end of November is the very tail end of Malabar spinach season if you started growing this plant in spring. So you can either harvest greens and freeze them in advance to have enough for a meal or start a new crop in August for fresh eating in November. They will still be alive and kicking if you haven't had a first frost. These leaves, like spinach, cook down quite a bit, but they have a little bit more water content. So cook down this juicy spinach alternative and create a stovetop cream of spinach if you prefer instead of a cold salad. A late crop of fresh green beans is very tough to grow at this time of year, but if you have a freezer, you can store your spring green beans and just cook them later. Try a 30 second steam and ice water plunge to stop the cooking process before freezing for a crunchier bean or cook and can your beans. Even with some of these substitutions, you may not be equipped at this point in time to prepare a from the homestead meal. But if that's something that's important to you, take the time to plan out your garden for this goal next year. Make a note of which foods you want on your table which substitutions you're comfortable with, and which ingredients you are willing to purchase to make it all come together. If you are not comfortable growing a certain plant or raising your own meat, you can find a local producer and pay in advance to have your bird prepped for pickup or shipped to you. A common homesteading misconception is that you have to do everything yourself. This really isn't true, especially if you're starting out. If you've ever read the Little House on the Prairie books, I recall that 
everybody was located near enough to a small town so they could stop into the local general store when they needed something. It's been a while since they read those books, but I'm pretty sure bartering and purchasing was pretty popular. It's popular now too if you just ask around. For example, if you know someone locally that grows a ton of one or two crops for their family as a hobby, and that's all they do, I'm sure they'd be open to trading you for their fresh produce in exchange for some of yours. Or maybe you have some canned goods or dried goods that you'd like to exchange instead. Not doing everything myself and making compromises is something I now feel very strongly about. I used to think homesteading was an individual responsibility and that I needed to be self-reliant to accomplish my bigger homesteading goal. My non-homesteading friends were surprised that I was homesteading and doing things for myself, but equally surprised when I didn't do something for myself because they just didn't understand how much energy, time, and money this goal took to accomplish. My homesteading goal has been seen by some as interesting, but not something they're interested in, and others as a silly waste of time and me silly for doing it. My YouTube channel and Instagram are actually named to represent the thoughts of and comments made by the latter group. The name of the channel is sort of my personal inside joke to help me get over the eye rolls and rudeness I've experienced in the past when talking about homesteading endeavors like the stories you've heard on this podcast. Today is a very different time than it was a decade ago, and these homesteading tasks are considered a lot more hip and cool than they were before. However, I keep this inside joke that I have now let you in on because I'm proud that I pushed forward and ignored the people that told me I should quit or that I was wasting my time when I failed. And believe me, I failed forward plenty of times and sometimes failed backwards. Earlier, I mentioned that each year I perfect my goals or change them to make them more realistic, and it's due to these many failures. When you're homesteading, don't be afraid to be realistic too and use your community to help you reach your goals instead of shouldering the burden yourself. I hope this episode gave you some inspiration for a future holiday meal and maybe some homesteading goals. If you're contemplating raising meek birds, just consider watching the YouTube episode that goes with this podcast. If you listen to this podcast episode in time for Thanksgiving, check out my Instagram. I'm going to have a few turkey-themed photos on stories and maybe even some videos dug up out of the archives that won't be shown on YouTube. Don't forget, every Friday is free Q&A. This is your opportunity to ask me questions about this episode or other gardening topics. Thanks so much for learning with me and have a happy Thanksgiving. 